It's February 9th, 2007, and this is The Candid Frame. Well, welcome to another episode of The Candid Frame. Great to have you aboard. Thanks for subscribing to the show. And uh, before we get on to our next guest today, I just want to send a thank you out to all those people who've been kind enough to send me emails about uh, how much they enjoy and appreciate the show. Um, I don't make money off this deal, so it's comments like, like yours that really help encourage me in terms of all the time and effort that I put into uh, producing and, and putting the show out there. Um, when I was coming up, I was always always hungry for anything related to photography and and that would provide an opportunity to learn from photographers whose work I really enjoyed. And uh, I'm just go, so glad that I've learned, you know, this technology and have the opportunity to bring the voices of all these great photographers uh, to you and your computer and, and your iPod or whatever you're listening to uh, uh, on this program. Um, if you really enjoy the show, I'd really appreciate it if you take the time to make uh, some comments uh, not only at the iTunes store, but some of the other aggregators that are out there like Yahoo or Audio. I'm uh, finding that a lot of people are finding the show and deciding to listen and, and subscribe, not only by listening to the show, but by seeing some of the comments that other people have been posting on it. So every little bit helps. So if you can take the time, um, just a couple of minutes to write such a comment uh, anywhere, um, I really would uh, appreciate it. And also, um, if you are a member of a, of a camera club or, or receive a regular photographic newsletter in, in your emails, uh, let me know about it so I can uh, see about getting a mention of the, of the podcast in, in, those, uh, in those newsletters. Or if you're responsible for it, even better, why don't you write, uh, write down a mention of the Candid Frame with the website. So uh, I always like seeing those numbers go, go up. So... Uh, uh, that's that's one of the greater gratifications I have about uh, about doing the show. But enough of that. So uh, let's get to our guest, and that guest is William Neal. Now, William Neal, if you read uh, Outdoor Photographer magazine with any regular regularity, you will be familiar with his with his column. And um, if you go to his website, which for which I'll have a link for on the site, you'll see that he is one amazing photographer. He is a, a, a landscape and nature photographer, but just saying that really do, doesn't say enough about uh, what makes Bill's photographs so, so great. Um, you know, he comes from a, a generation of photographers who were documenting and photographing the landscape in black and white, and you'll see that there's obviously a, a big difference with Bill's work because he works primarily in color. But the thing about Bill's work is that he doesn't take color images just for the sake of color. Um, as you'll hear during the interview, Ansel once commented about his work that he sees in black and white, though he's shooting in color. And it's a sensibility of, of uh, an awareness of, of tone, of, of texture, of, of contrast, of so many things that make up a photograph that helps him to use color in the best way possible. And his images really resonate. He talks about you know, wanting to to connect an emotion, a, a feeling, with the viewing and the creation of the photographs, and I think he he succeeds uh, immeasurably 
in, in that in that respect. And I think you'll you'll agree when you take a look at his photograph. But what I have to say about Bill, besides my comment about his work, is that he's just he's just a great guy. He's one of the more generous spirits I've ever had the the pleasure of meeting, and I'm really glad that not only that I've had the chance to interview him, but that I I can call him a friend. So uh, sit back and enjoy our conversation with Bill Neal. The way I like to do it is just that me and you are just sort of hanging out, and I just so happen to be recording it. So that's what I right. that's what, what I aim for anyway. I will. Uh, will do the best I can. All right, and it'll be fine. <laughs> well, let's let's start off with how you first got involved in in photography. I I've not really heard about that that story um, uh, of how you first came into photography and how it how it um, how you were inspired to get into it. Well, it came through. Um my backpacking explorations when I was uh, just out of high school, I uh, went to work in Glacier National Park for the summer before going to college and uh, got really hooked on backpacking and on the wilderness I was in Montana. And I took, took my dad's old Voigtlander camera, 120 uh, camera, and started taking a few pictures on the first summer I was there and then I came back to Glacier a second summer, and my mom had given me an Instamatic, and I just wanted to show people where I'd been. And I was backpacking by myself in long hikes in incredible country, and I just wanted to show people what I was seeing. So it started out as a way to share that experience. And we evolved from there. And was it while you were in college or after college that you felt like, you know, I really want to learn more about this and, and develop my skill as a photographer. How, how did that lead to, you know, uh, studying with, with Ansel and eventually working with him, Ansel Adams? Hmm. Well, I took a few courses in college and by the time I was out, I, I was more interested in pursuing photography than uh, a career related to my degree, which was environmental studies. I, um, came to Yosemite out of college and that helped a lot just because it was a great place to live and I was working for the National Park Service. I, on my days off, I would go out to photograph and turn my film, film in at the Ansel Adams Gallery and got to know um, Lewis Kemper who, worked, who was working there at the time and it turned out uh, in 1980 he decided to leave his job as the photographer at the Ansel Adams Gallery, and I came in one day and he said, do you want my job? And I was unemployed, so it was fairly appealing. <laughs> and the next thing I knew, I was uh, leading camera walks and meeting Ansel and um, kind of in a, a place where I could learn a lot about photography, meet a lot of interesting people, and do a lot of photography. What was what was the community of photographers like during um, during that time? I mean, now you know, with with the internet and websites and emails, people can create a community for themselves fairly easily by just having a computer and an internet connection. Um, I'm kind of curious as what kind of community you found um, there, particularly around the the 
the, the gallery and, and your involvement with Vansel? Well, a lot of it was evolved around his workshops every summer. And a group of photographers would come. Uh, there were the instructors, the, the famous guys, and there were, you know, uh, assistants who were quite talented themselves. And I was an employee of the Ansel Adams Gallery, and I was able to manage my schedule to attend a lot of the classes. So I would, I would go see Ansel teach, or I would go see. Uh, uh, I mean, we had everybody from Arnold Newman to Richard Miserac to um, Olivia Parker, and all kinds of you know photographers that had wide a wide range of styles and inclinations. So it was. Uh, a very mind-opening experience, and you know the other photographers that I met there, you know, that became friends, were people that I was able to learn from, and you know, kind of at similar stages in in our careers. You know, roughly, you know, just out of college twenties or something, and and meeting some of the better-known photographers like John Sexton or Alan Ross, and and. Uh, I met Chris Renier during those days and just got to meet them, you know, see their work, um, you know, become friends with some of them and talk about, you know, what the, what we could do with photography, what the potential was. But it was not uh, as kind of a constant thing, like you said, with the Internet. It was just when, you know, you managed to get together. Mm-hmm. I just worked for Ansel through the Ansel Adams Gallery. I never worked for him directly. But for example, Chris Rainier worked for him at his house, and Chris and I were friends. So I would go visit Chris and get to hang out with Ansel and, and uh, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. It was quite a positive thing. And then there was the Friends of Photography. Uh, it was based in Carmel in the early 80s, and that... Uh, uh, continued Ansel's workshops, and they did other workshops as well throughout the year. And those occasions, you know, we were, I was often like, an, uh, I was an assistant to the better-known instructors. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I would meet, you know, other students who were very interested in photography. I would be able to sh- show them work, my work, uh, show the instructors my work. You know, I had opportunities like getting to know Jerry Yulston, becoming friends with him and trading work with him. I was able to show my work to uh, Ernest Haas uh, just a few months before he passed away. I was able to show my work to Paul Caponegro, and these were all people that, that uh, whose work I had tremendous respect for. Yeah. And that, you know, all kept me uh, excited and moving forward. You know, that's, and I think that's an important thing that... Uh, to focus on is is the fact about sharing sharing the work, particularly with people who you know or are more experienced or or have more t- or more talent than you may necessarily have at at, at a given level. Um, I think it's one thing to take a, a nice picture and want to share it with someone who you, who you know is going to say, "Oh, it's a beautiful photograph." But it's another thing to share it with someone whose opinion and whose work you you respect. I mean, not all of us get the opportunity to to interact with you know with people like Ernest Ernst Haas or or, or or the like but i i think it's important to to recognize that there are probably people whose 
work that we appreciate and respect and that it's kind of important to be able to to share our work not so much because you know we want to be praised but because of what opportunities it provides for learning about the work well a good example of that is is my friendship with chris veneer and he was several years younger than me uh, and still is but obviously but the uh he was able to to help me see some things in my work, some trends in my work that I wasn't aware of, and because I uh, respected his work and and we had a good photographic association, you know, I, I valued what he was saying, and I saw, you know, directions to take that I wouldn't have seen. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how I would have responded to a to a comments from someone from a lower or a higher level, especially, you know, an uh, an instructor, a well-known photographer, you know, it was just a, um, kind of a digestible way to, to absorb critique. Yeah. Critique. Here's, here's a possible direction. This looks like something I haven't seen before. This is exciting. And, you know, you can take it or leave it, but it can often point you in directions you wouldn't have thought of going. Yeah. One of the things that you you talk about in um, is the whole emotional connection that you have to the the scenes that you you photograph and how, and what you mostly want to convey through your images. Um, it's not just the idea of creating an an aesthetically pleasing photograph, though that's a big part of it. But you speak a lot about about that emotional sort of connection to to the image and to the photograph. Did that start developing? Then during that time, or did that come sort of later as you as you progressed as a photographer? No, this was early on with with through Ansel's workshops. Uh, you know, making a photograph that, as Ansel always put it, it was an emotional equivalent uh, of your experience, and that's something he picked up was passing on from Stiglitz. Um, that was something I heard from the beginning, and so you know, describing a scene was never. You know, it's an initial instinct, but it was never really a goal early on for me. It was putting, um, trying to tap your, and have faith in your vision to to, to uh, find directions within your work that are more unique. Mm-hmm. Everybody takes photographs that look like everybody else's. Yeah. It's a matter of editing and, and picking up on those trends that are, are exciting or, you know, are more unique than others that, you know, reflect most strongly uh, what was going on at the time. Yeah, in your inside. And Ansel found a way of, of trying to be expressing that through the print, and be, and that was you know, largely conducive to the fact that he was working with black and white. But a lot of a lot of your images um, uh, were in in color, um, which color in and of itself doesn't allow for the sort of extensive. Um, you know, um, massaging of, of, of the print as you, as you are, as, as capable with, with black and white. Um, how did you find, well, first off, wh- why have you been drawn so much to color and, and how does that, um, the whole idea of conveying something emotionally, um, translate when you're working with color with, with the limits that you've traditionally had in terms of what your ability, your ability to control the, the overall print. Well, it was frustrating back in, say, the early 80s when 
first started using Cibachrome, and I didn't know, uh, you know, I didn't really understand fully in the beginning how limited, you know, color could be back then um, compared to black and white. But my my interest was there. I had um, a professor in college who was very much against doing color, and, and that steered me toward color because I wanted to prove him wrong. <laughs> I really felt that that it was possible, and I think I found ways through um, you know more monochromatic uses of color um, that somehow don't you know make the, the image you know, so dependent on color. You know, it's a matter of seeing in black and white and composing structurally as you would in black and white, and the color is just in in, in the design sense becomes secondary, and emotionally it depends on the image, on the degree of impact of the color, but if the foundation is there, and you've kind of seen a photograph as if it were a black and white, and you design it in that kind of graphics, I don't know, simpler style, mm-hmm. without without kind of backing off and just trying to get a bunch of color in the picture right? and hoping that carries it. Um, someone so, showed Ansel some of my work, and that's something he said um, is that I saw in black and white. And I never got to talk to him about that in detail, but um, and I, this is what I think he was referring to as the, the, the more monochromatic use of color and, and not you know, depending on the color. Yeah, because I think... Opposition. That's one of the challenges about about effectively using color is the fact that you can't make color in and of itself the, the, the true subject of, of the photograph. Sometimes, you know, that, that works, but for, I guess, for, I guess for a real fuller experience sometimes, you have to consider all the different other elements of the... Uh, of the of the scene and you know and, and seeing it in terms of of, of shape and form of, of, of contrast and not in and of just just the color itself sign of can elevates or, or makes the image a lot more interesting a little more complex yeah and it depends on on the subject matter with nature you know, monochromatic monochromatic images can be you know bright or not I Speaking of a photograph I took on the Merced River, and it's, it's practically a black and white photograph, but you know you can tell it's not. Uh, but it's you know so, so close to being a black and white photograph. Mm-hmm. Just a flashing back on on something I heard Joel Meyerowitz say in uh, one of Ansel's workshops. This was in probably 1982. He said, "If you can't make it good, make it red." <laughs> <laughs> which is not really something to to try to follow but it was it was a great line yeah I, I, and he was he was trying to talk about using subtle color and at that time he was known for his you know uh subtle very subtle use of color in large format and it's, that uh, that was a, a way of advocating more subtle uses of color mm-hmm. which is really what we're talking about yeah, it's interesting to see the, in your images how you use color 
not only in, in the grand landscapes that you photograph, but in the small details, whether you're like photographing lichen or moss or, or leaf patterns. Um, I really like that, that you bring that to, to your work, because I think oftentimes when people think of nature or, or landscape photography, they're always thinking about the big picture. But you do some amazing, amazing work um, creating these fantastic photographs from the small details and you realize how how rich it is in terms of color in terms of texture in terms of detail um was that something that you'd always had sort of drawn to or that did that come um sort of later i think that part of that inspiration that that was inherent how i saw saw things but i also saw work uh, a good example would be edward weston or, or minor white who were doing some beautiful details i mean a you know, the, a pepper photograph or minor white photographs of rocks, you know, that were just mysterious and magical. And I saw that work and thought I could try to do uh, and be, do something similar like that in color. Mm-hmm. The professor in college that I kind of fought with, once he finally kind of gave up on me and, and trying to convert me to black and white, and he didn't really like nature photography. He didn't like Ansel's work. He, you know, got out a book of minor whites and said, "Well, if you're gonna, if you're gonna follow that path, here's some some inspiration." And he showed me Win Bullock's work and looked through these books and get some ideas, and that mm-hmm. that helped me a lot. A lot of your work is is based out in Yosemite, where where you've been living for for quite a while. Um, Tell me about, because a lot of people, if you're a lot of people, Yosemite is sort of a photographic destination, but I think it's kind of interesting that it's literally your, your backyard. And how has the experience of actually living there um, helped you to develop your, your photographic eye and your experience of, of the place photographically? Well, being able to be, get so familiar with the place and having the goal of trying to overcome cliches, you kind of learn how to push yourself past them, kind of not be afraid of them, and because I have lots of them that are somewhat cliched, but, you know, with some good editing, I can, you know, edit down those, uh, you know, a group that are not. So she, so it was um, just a long process of, of the landscape teaching me, and, and also my goal of, of showing, you know, what I would call the depths of its beauty and not just the, the surface, uh, the surface glamour. And so with that in mind, every time I would you know, wander around with my camera, that's, that's what I would gravitate towards. I had a funny experience recently, a few years ago, where uh, Sierra Club was looking for some images for a box set of note cards, which is a good commercial gig, and, and but they wanted all Yosemite icons. You know, at that time, I'd lived and photographed in Yosemite for 25 years, and I couldn't find enough for them. Hmm. But you have some more of uh, Yosemite Falls, and maybe, how about half film in the summer, and how about, I said, no, no, I, I don't. Well, you've seen what I've done there. It's like at three, you know, <laughs> I didn't have, you know, this you know, massive stock uh, resource of 
the icons of Yosemite. It's not been my orientation, and, and uh, sometimes it hurts me on a commercial level, but I mean, usually not. It's okay. Yeah. They had to go find somebody else. What do you love most about about living up there? Well, just just the access to it, that's obvious, and the ability to to watch things and learn and learn a place. Right now I live about an hour and a half uh from Yosemite Valley. So the last seven years I I don't get there that much, but I used to live for about twenty years in a little town right outside of Yosemite called El Portel. And when I worked in the park, when I would go to work at the Ansel Adams Gallery, I would, you know, photograph on my way to work and on my way home. I'd leave early. I'd get home late. If there was light, if there was good light, it was, you know, I was there to watch it. And so, you know, that's uh, just the, the opportunity to get to know a place in depth. You know, and that I just happen to be extremely lucky and have Yosemite right nearby. But uh, that can that can work for anybody anywhere. Yeah. In my better photo classes, we were talking about the, the, for students to be able to follow through on this eight-week class, they need to find a place they can return to for the assignments. And a lot of them will initially send in images from, say they're on the East Coast, they'll send you know, landscapes from the West, and um, I kind of nudge them towards um, looking for a place nearby that they can... Uh, study. Mm-hmm. They can become a student of that place, and and at least for the course, you know, go back and and uh, find out what is good when. And that's that's the you know great advantage of uh, being being near such a spectacular place like Yosemite. But like I said, I moved away, and I, I'm still in the Sierra Nevada foothills, and I have pine trees and and beautiful things out my window, you know, I still look outside and, and watch what's happening to the light and and uh, become that kind of a li- lifelong student of, of, of the light as it uh, applies to my subject matter, to yeah. the trees and the rocks, etc. Your course through um, Better, Better Photo is the Portfolio Development Course. And I've, I've seen, uh, I have the opportunity to see a lot of people's work. And sometimes I think when people are considering sharing their work in the hopes of, you know, being able to, you know, get a get a job or, or have some opportunity uh, derived from the work, um, sometimes there isn't the, the the biggest flaw I often see is that there's not a, a real cohesiveness um, in the portfolio. There may be some sort of strong images, but the the it's not really organized in a way that that gives me a, a strong sense of the person's overall work which i think is what's key uh for a portfolio why don't you talk a bit about what you think is important for anyone considering putting together a body of work uh in that sort of sort of presentation what what's important what's 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 best to do and what's what's even better what are, what are some of the things to avoid um, I think the the first thing to do is to kind of establish a your your highest level of quality. You know, if you have ten images on a subject and 
two are great and eight are not so good, then two is your portfolio. And you see what, um, as you add to a portfolio, you, you maintain that quality and hopefully you, you push it upward. But in terms of editing, you know, it's a matter of, um, uh, maintaining a certain level of quality and then coming up with a, a coherent theme that is consistent in terms of style. Um, and just kind of push yourself forward and then, then when you go out to photograph, you can, you know, add to it with, with, um, you know, what new subjects you might want to add. Mm-hmm. As far as what to avoid, I guess that, that's what I w- was saying about, you know, when you add to a portfolio, you look, uh, you look for, work that maintains the quality and learn, you know, what doesn't. And when you lay things out on a, on a monitor or on a, a light box, you can see you know, this is, I have too many lichen photographs. I'm doing a, a, a study on the forest floor. I need some more leaves or I need some more this or that. You can balance it in terms of the, the range of subject, subject matter. Um, those are the things I try to work on and look, look at when I'm, coaching uh, somebody and developing a portfolio. Yeah. One of the things you had talked about earlier about the whole, your whole uh, focus on, on the color photography was sort of the limits of, of Cibacom printing. But now with, with the digital, whether you shoot digital or not, the, the Photoshop, the computer, inkjet printers have provided color photographers a, a level of control that was only traditionally available to black and white photography. How has that changed um, your process in terms of your work, especially your, your color work? Well, I've just had more control over it. You know, it's been a fabulous uh, uh, development. And I started having my images printed digitally in the early 1990s with uh, Evercolor prints. And at that time, Somebody else was doing the scanning and somebody else was doing the Photoshop work and I would give them feedback. They were my printer. And slowly as um, the printers got better and I learned more, I got to the point where I I was kind of in the proper amount of control. (laughs) I used to print my own work and then I, I didn't have a darkroom for a long time, so I used use labs, you know, analog before I, I went to, you know, using a digital process. But now I'm able to uh, just have the, the type of control that I always should have had, and it's really nice. Mm-hmm. One I of the, feel so much more in control of my work. One of the s- series that I think may have resulted from that are the the triptychs that you've you've been doing, and I hope I'm saying that right. But uh, t- yeah, w- for people who don't know what they are, can you describe what they are and what has what has led you to to create this series? What what is it about um, this particular format format that's intriguing for you? Well, it has a lot of uh, potential. It's it's three images. Uh, you know, adjacent to each other. And I started doing it when I first started using a digital camera. I would look at the 
the back of the LCD and, and looking at thumbnails of several images, I'd see, you know, three images uh, in a row, and it just hit me, you know, that this that the particular image was kind of graphic, and there were variations between each image. It was, I was uh, a session photographing surf patterns from up high on a cliff, and it was just very exciting to to think about putting those together. And what it did to, for me was give me a way to try to show um, relationships and, and subtleties and variation, you know, within a given subject instead of coming up with one frame and, you know, the perfect sunset. I could photograph uh, one cloud at, you know, three different times and give a sense of the fading light. I have one image that's a nine-panel grid where I have you know, basically three triptychs uh, stacked on top of each other, and they're each of the same you know, section of the sky, and they show kind of a, a sense of the sunset mm -hmm. that you don't have with one frame. We spend so much energy editing to that one perfect image as if that's the only time anything was any good. You know, when you look through, the sunset's just a great example because if you watch, you know, look at your film and you see, you know, there, there's positive things about, you know, the, the brightest color when it's, in the, and then it starts to fade and there's, you know, the subtle changes you can see and, and then it gets even more muted. And it's a sense of the change in nature that's so exciting that I, that I that you can show, as, as well as the variations within one subject. One thing I photographed is uh, ripples. And I'll take three frames of uh, ripples on, a, on water, three frames within one second, mm. and put the three of them next to each other. And each frame was, was exposed within one second, and they looked totally different. Yeah. It's a way, kind of like stop action of... Uh, photographs of my bridge, you know, showing things that we weren't otherwise able to perceive. You see things, you know, the subtleties of, of uh, that particular subject that you wouldn't see by just seeing one frame. Not to mention the, the fact that subtle changes happen, can happen so quickly with different things. It's like so photographing clouds when they're, you know, building up in the sky, you know, you take several frames and you see that, that evolution. It's exciting. And it's just a way, photographic way of portraying that. Yeah. And, it's, and really that's what photography is about, is creating an image from this very fleeting moment, you know, which is just a fraction of a second. And that just a moment later or a mo later before, a subtle change can happen that can totally transform um, a moment and consequently consequently a photograph. It's, it's, it's one thing to be sort of aware of a scene, but also to be conscious of the, those subtle differences that can occur um, in a space. You know, because the, the things in front of us, even the grand, the grand landscape isn't, it isn't static, you know. Right. It's, it's it's constantly in flux, and it's you have to be in. I think you have to be in really in tune with all those 
subtle shifts in light or, or, or motion or shadow and contrast in order in order to really have a sense of 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 what there really is there to capture. Otherwise you kind of I think you miss out on a lot and and your photographs don't can't be as strong as they as they as they could be as a result. Well it's it's an aspect of, that you discover when you're working a scene and sticking through those subtle changes. You know, you have to stop first of all you have to give yourself the options to see them. It's hard to sit there and photograph and analyze them like you can later. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you have to start to think, ask yourself, you know, what it was the best moment. You know, what, was it when the color was the brightest? Uh, you know, or, or is you know, something more subtle better? Um, or does this image, with just the touch of color left on the clouds, give you a sense of that, that last last gasp of the day yeah. that, you know, the brilliant color wouldn't give you. Well, one of the things I really... No matter what you want to... It's, it's related to what you, you know, especially analyzing later what you remember of that scene and what you want to convey when, you know, through that editing process. Yeah. Well, one of the interesting things that you, you, you're doing is the whole sort of motion series, and I think that for a lot of people who may not be... As, as well, school you have you know have certain ideas of what landscape photography is. This whole thing that you're doing with with motion and color, um, I think, is really really fascinating. Um, how did that that start developing for you? And and why don't you tell some of the listeners about some of the discoveries you've made in terms of other photographers who've been working similarly? Well, I got involved with this technique through students I had in, in my better photo classes and they were doing some exciting work and I, I just tried it once and got hooked. Um, so my images are single exposures and you know, just using camera motion. The kind of impressionistic work uh, that we're talking about in general can be done through multiple exposure and, and a lot of different methods, but my uh, choice is a single exposure and the use of camera movement. And it just, it's really a continuation of my other work. It doesn't, it doesn't really change anything. I'm still trying to convey um, an emotional uh, connection to nature that I feel and can convey it in the image. Um, I didn't really know how good a track I was on until I printed the work and seeing it on the, the monitor is, is, was fun and exciting but when I started printing it um, especially on watercolor paper it really looked like uh, it looked complete the watercolor paper it kind of took it a step away from kind of a straight photographic print and, and gave it the pizzazz I was looking for I guess one of the most exciting things about doing it is is the evolution per per scene you're working on. You know, you, with a digital camera, and I'm using a Canon uh, 1DS Mark II, and I'm I'm taking hundreds of pictures of a given you know, at a given time, and I'm constantly looking at them pop up on the LCD 
if I'm moving the camera, I usually hold the shutter down until the the buffer is reached and the camera stops uh, while it's writing to memory. And, and then I look at uh, the results and make adjustments in the aperture or shutter speed especially. And I can see you know, what changes to make and go back and try something else. And often I, I feel like I'm, I've got something, but because I can see that, that feedback so easily, I just keep going and keep experimenting and, uh, until the light changes or I'm exhausted or I'm a fill up a card, memory card or something <laughs> and, and, uh, and sit back and evaluate, you know, change lenses. One of the key things that's really helped me is a filter that I use called a, uh, a Singray's Very ND, mm-hmm, yeah, which is a two to eight stop variable filter, and and I got a hold of one of those thankfully, and it and it really helps uh, give me a lot more options in terms of shutter and aperture combinations. It's a beautiful series of images. I I totally agree with you. Probably seeing the prints is probably a completely different experience from from watching watching those things on the monitor. Um, we were having a discussion about just that topic, about the idea that so many um, digital photographers oftentimes stop at what they see up on the screen and don't go all the way to to actually printing many, uh, many if if at all of their images, and yet and that it's still that that photographic print holding it in your hand that really completes the whole the whole experience, the whole idea of of creating a a photograph. Well, I think all photographers run across this that end up creating more work than they can ever handle, including printing. It's um, even when you have a market for your work. It's I have, you know, producing far more that, than than uh, you know, images than I ever have the opportunity to, to make prints of, or you know, have them shown somewhere. So that can be frustrating, but it. Um, that's that's another subject altogether with the marketing. Yeah. But you asked me about uh, you know the evolution of this process, and I kind of did some research. Uh, one uh, photographer, Tony Sweet, had been doing some, and I, I asked him where he learned about it, and he said he learned it from Freeman Patterson, and Freeman Patterson did a did a book on photo impressionism. So I looked at that and uh, found out. You know, there was a wide number of photographers that had been playing around with it and um, done some very exciting things. The thing that I'm hoping to do, and I feel pretty good about it at this point, uh, is that that some of the some people were kind of dabbling in it. Let's put it that way, mm-hmm. and made some beautiful images. Um, but for whatever reason, lack of interest or lack of market for it, you know, the, the, the portfolio on the, you know, the blurs or the whatever you want to call them, the uh, impressionist images were, were um, was not, you know, particularly deep. It's not necessarily prose, but just in general. Yeah. Um, it was, you know, we all take different tangents, and, and that's a vital thing to do creatively. But I just got hooked on it enough that 
uh, and maybe it's from teaching the portfolio development class that I that I wanted to make it, you know, give it the depth that I would ask of others. Mm. Well, the the last question I always end the show with is ask is I ask a photographer to recommend another photographer whose work they think listeners should explore and uh, and learn from. So, who would that be for you, and why? Well, I've been listening to your podcast, and I've, I've heard you ask this question, so I've, I've had the time to think of this in advance, and and I will do my best to just give you one photographer because it's so hard to narrow it down. Uh, but after thinking about it, I decided to select Ernst Haas. Um, he was a photographer that really pioneered the use of color through the, oh, like the forties and fifties into the sixties where, you know, black and white was all there was when he started and he did a lot of great black and white work, but picked up using color and, and pushed it to all kinds of limits and, and did some outstanding work, uh, you know, of people and of nature. Uh, he did motion studies and abstract close-ups and, um, a very, very versatile photographer. He did a whole book on um, uh, trip he made to the Himalayas, where I've also photographed, and I love seeing that. And, and if you ever get a chance, anybody listening, go to uh, you know, go to Google and look up Ernst Haas and get a look at his work. Go to a library, uh, check out what he's done, and not only looking at the images, but hear what he has to say. I, I was fortunate enough to meet him and and listen to him, and he was very uh, um, brilliant character. Had a lot of, of uh, important things to say. Well, that's a great recommendation. Well, thank you, Bill. It's It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Well, thank you again for joining me for another episode of The Candid Frame. If you have any comments or suggestions about the show, email me at thecandidframe at gmail.com or leave a message at the blog at thecandidframe.com. Till next time, this is Ivarian X Perello, and this is The Candid Frame. Check out this show and more great photography podcasts at photocastnetwork.com. Photocastnetwork.com.